Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. So guys, this is going to be the last episode for the summer. I am preparing for our big move to Texas, which is happening in a week. Uh, mixed feelings because we have loved living in Greenwich, Connecticut. It's been a fantastic place, being right next to New York City. And I've said it before, I definitely think I have an East Coast soul, but I am from Texas, so it's going to be good to be back home close to family. And then we're going to be traveling a bit this summer. So... All new episodes coming out in August, and until then, I will be posting some of my favorite old episodes this summer. So check those out, and you know, don't leave me yet. I am very excited to kind of end, I guess, the season, if you want to call it that, with Mitha Malik. Mitha is a DEI leader, the host of Roundtable Talks, and one of LinkedIn top voices. And um, as tends to happen with my guest, we instantly connected. I feel like she's like my soul sister. Love the conversation. It was so much fun. So I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Mitha Malik. So let's let's get into it because you were talking about how you grew up with your name. So where did where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Boston. Okay, Massachusetts. So you grew up outside of Boston, predominantly white area. And did your so your parents' immigration story, is that where they landed or have you guys moved around? They moved around a lot before having us. Okay. I was born in Michigan, Garden City, Michigan. I okay. stayed until I was two, and then my parents moved to Massachusetts. And my dad uh, was from a family of ten. My mom's from a family of nine. Jesus. My dad's mother was married when she was 12 years old, and my mother's mother was married when she was 10 years old. I feel that I know, I believe when I share this in majority white spaces, I get a lot of, a lot of WTF goodness, sigh, like screaming, like freaking out. And it's interesting when I share it where there's more diversity representation in the room, someone normally comes up to me and says, that was my grandmother's story too. And normally that is still, you know, and I would say that's still happening in the world today. Yep. I feel like our grandmothers got married the same time, like same age, 12. It was like 12-ish. Yeah. Something like that. And I think for me now, it's like I always knew that growing up. Like it was yeah. not a secret. Right. I didn't really understand it until now my son, I have a seven and nine-year-old. And as I grew up and became a young adult and started to know people, little people who were that age, you're like, it just rocks your mind. Cause then you also see that your grandparents had a loving relationship and had a big family. It's, it's really difficult to sort of process what that means and that you don't have, you don't have a choice. You are not married. You are married off. Right. My mother got married at 20 and it was considered like super late. How about your mom? Um, My mom was 19. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she made it right under yeah, that, right under that, that late age of 20. Yeah. yeah good, good for her. So, yeah, so then, so then we were, um, my brother was born in Massachusetts, a younger brother. So we were set. Okay. Okay. And then did parents come here for like higher education jobs? Yes, they did. Just to okay. start a 
a great life as many people do the classic immigrant story, but they knew no one here. They had no family and nobody since then has immigrated. So it's like everyone stayed in India. So that's unusual where I think in like my husband's family, lots of his aunts and uncles and his parents, siblings over time came to the U S that, that wasn't the case for my family. We share the same story. No one came over and I asked them about it and it was a mix of circumstances. But I think for my family, I think at first they were just trying to figure out their own lives. Like like your family didn't know anyone. We eventually got a cousin or two over here. But it was also lack of maybe not ambition, but they just my family didn't want to come here. Mm-hmm. Or whatever, whatever the case was. And then and I want to ask you about that too, because I have an uh tumultuous relationship with India and our culture. And uh, some of that is has to do with family uh, drama and issues, which I feel like every Indian family has. Right. And I also discovered as I became an adult, I had this, I used to watch Bollywood all the time, like oh. all the time, like the eighties and nineties Bollywood were like, women had no voice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or like there were rape scenes that were normal yeah. kind of thing. And so I, I'm just looking back at both India where I had to go every summer Mm-hmm. as a kid. And then I had lived there twice. And then just my idea of what India was and Bollywood and just kind of how I viewed my culture as a kid versus now. And like many adults, you look back at childhood experiences and you're like, oh, wait, that's not what I thought it was. Yeah. How was your relationship with India and with our culture? And did you grow up going there? I did grow up going there from from summers here and there. My parents had very strong ties back to Kolkata. I'll be honest, growing up, I grew up in a time and a place where it wasn't cool to be Indian. It wasn't cool to wear Indian jewelry. It wasn't cool to bring egg curry to class. It wasn't cool to dance to Bollywood music and what right. is it, screw or unscrew the light bulb. It wasn't cool. And so I was bullied a lot, both verbally and physically by my peers. And so I wanted to do anything but be Indian. I wanted to assimilate because my difference was what what made me the, the source of target. And right. so while I, I enjoyed doing things with my nuclear family at home, I did not enjoy what that meant outside of our doors. Right, right. And I mean, I'm assuming some of this has to do with, with the area you were in, right? Absolutely. I mean, it okay. was, there was a handful of families of color, okay. but there was not certainly much diversity of representation in classrooms. That's hard. Growing up in in elementary school, middle school. Right. Because I grew up in Houston, which obviously has tons of Indians, but I grew up in a very white, like little neighborhood. Uh, But we always, every weekend we would escape to go to to Monday classes. And the weekends were where we hung out with the Indian families, right? Yeah. I kind of, kind of get what you're saying. And so I was going to ask, because I also look back and I'm like, I wonder, like, did I experience racism? I can't remember. I don't know if I did or not. I, I would have to assume in you know, my younger years, teenagers, I probably did, maybe didn't recognize it. I'm assuming you recognized it. Absolutely. It was outward. So, I mean, not to be a psychologist, how has it impacted you now as an adult? One of the stories, I mean, that I share pretty publicly now was I was bullied a lot growing up and it was low level things like I wouldn't say low level because these things, it's the whole conversation we have around microaggressions. What's the opposite macroaggressions? It's the everyday shit we go through, which is why D and I started our podcast, Brown Table Talk. And it was the throwing of spitballs in my hair, 
It was, you know, one point we had racial slurs painted in front of our home, the S word, which I won't, which I won't say on the podcast, the N word. And I didn't really know what they meant growing up. I just Mm -hmm. knew that in maybe in today's day and age, I hope that it would be considered by the local authorities a hate crime and they would come and remove those words. They didn't. And we didn't have the money to repave. So the words just stayed there until eventually washed away. But I didn't, I didn't really understand what they were. I knew it wasn't good. Right. And then my freshman year of high school, I was the target of two white boys who just were relentlessly bullying me. I don't know why. And I had a braid down to my knees at the time and they would pull my braid in the hallway as if I was a horse and be like, nay. And then one of them I sat in front of, and I was terrified because as we had to pass papers back, and if I didn't do things fast enough, he would hold my head back against the desk. And then during the lab portion of that class, they decided to set my hair on fire. What? Yeah. And so my lab partner who never spoke to me, we were at the bench and she said to me, she finally screamed, your hair is on fire. And it's because they had been lighting matches from a bench behind us and just had been throwing them in to my braid. And so my hair was damaged. I mean, my hair is fine today, but the damage that does to your psyche. I also, it's funny, I was at um, a friend's house recently and she wanted to light a candle. I can't light candles. I can't be near fire. And I do think it's tied to that. I just don't like fire. And and I don't think I've ever fully processed that. Right. And the, that day, we were, all three of us were sent to the principal's office, then superintendents, as if I had done something wrong. And they got one day of suspension. And then they came back. And I don't, I think I've blocked out the rest. I mean continued to terrorize me. But that was the day I would say, I mean, outside of my parents, that was the first time. And my parents, I love them, but they didn't grow up here. They didn't know how to be an advocate for me. Right. So think they were being bullied. Right. I was just about to ask you, how did your parents, I mean, like they are also completely new to the country. I never told my parents because the, my hair was actually so long that I ended up cutting a lot of the damage out and I ended up having stopped my mother, stop doing my hair. Okay. So they actually never knew about it because when you have hair that long, it actually, and it's dense. I mean, there was definitely hair that burned. I don't right. know detailed about it, but it's just, right. it's, the, luckily it wasn't a whole. And, and I guess in a weird way, you, you're maybe thinking, what can they do anyways? Yeah, I would, I certainly. And I was right? scared to talk to them about it. They, and so that was the day when a guidance counselor who is the track coach actually showed up for me the first like advocate I would say in my life outside of my big deal. And he forced me to play track and cross country, which I hated, but he could sense I was fast and I was, and it was like the moment where I felt equal. That's amazing. With these girls when I was running. So that was the first time. And I think that's like an analogy for, you know, this literally, having my hair set on fire and having these bullies from classrooms and schoolyards follow me into corporate America. That mm-hmm. I wonder where those two kids are nowadays. Don't you? I wonder, you know what, actually I have spent 
too many hours wasted Googling them where I'm like, I should be Googling their parents. I should be Googling those teachers. I should Google the superintendent's name. Where were, where were the authorities? Where were the yeah. parents? Where were the teachers? Because honestly, the blame is on them. And not That's the- crazy. I mean, you could have seriously gotten like badly injured. That's insane that nothing was done. Yeah, it was. It's. I mean, it's not the same, but this re- that recent the recent news in Dallas. Yeah, in Texas. You know, so it's unfortunately. I wish I could say that was from a place a long time ago. It's not. And this was what thirty years ago. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Twenty. Well, yeah. Twenty. What is happening to our world? So from that, which is horrendous. Do you remember any turning point where you started maybe embracing and being proud of being Indian? Did that happen later? I don't think it happened much later. Yeah. It happened much later. I'm um, proudly wearing I know jewelry from Blossom Box Jewelry. It's a founder I covered, Reka, who started this amazing line. And I yeah. just was so inspired and wanted to cover her for Entrepreneur because so much of her story was my story, all of our stories. And I was so embarrassed. Like I would bring jewelry back from India and I would, you know, the few times people made fun of me and mocked me and laughed at me, I put it away and never wore it again. I think it was yeah. much later that I tried to, I think it's probably even post-college. Maybe that just comes with age and just realize, I mean, who knows? I think that happens to a lot of us. Do you ever worry about your kids? Do you talk to them about this stuff ever? I do. I mean, I talk to them about bullying all the time. Oh, sorry, first, did you marry an Indian American? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Also first generation. Okay. That's where immigrants. Are you surprised? Are you surprised by that? Um, not really. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't really thought about it. Yeah. I just know a lot of fr- my friends who grew up in wider areas, not around too many yeah, Indians. Yeah. A lot of them ended up marrying a non-Indian just, yeah. nat- just naturally. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we actually met after like when we were um, post-college and in, in the Boston area. So. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. So, so your kids are Indian American. Yes. I talk to them about it a lot. Okay. Um, well, in the sense of you know, talking about the diversity tipping point of May 2020 and the murder of George Floyd and what's happening with the disturbing, alarming rate of hate crimes against the Asian community, talking to them about um, the deadliest massacre for school shooting that we're living through. Yeah. I haven't slept in like three days. Yeah. And so I have to mention, I have to talk to them about this stuff. I'd rather have me talk to them then them yeah. find out from someone else, but also they're at the age, at least my nine-year-old now, who can have conversations about this and understand or ask questions. Right. Why why would someone do that just because they're a different skin color? It's just so interesting because kids will boil it down real simple, real simple. It's a simplistic but, question. It really that is the question. And you're like, right? that is the question. Like we can dissect it and dissect it all day long, but that's really what it is. I mean, one of the things that ties to the work I do now is that we spend as a country, especially since May 2020, billions and billions and billions of dollars, literally on diversity, equity and inclusion training, the training and then also knowing the chief diversity officer role. I mean, LinkedIn stats, it is like quadruple. I don't even remember the stat. It is every time I look at it, the demand for this work is out of control. Right. Yet this work starts at home. I cannot put you through a three-hour unconscious bias training, which I don't believe in or whatever other right. training and think you're going to change. Right. Because it is about how you spend your time outside of work and how you that were matters. raised and how, what your community is like. 
And I say to leaders I coach, you know, if you have young people in your life, be really careful about the language you use. It starts at our kitchen table. So if we start to use words like strange, crazy, weird, different, odd, different, Mm -hmm. difficult, it is the gateway to stereotyping, which leads to hate. And so to really call our kids on, oh, well, Mina seems a little lazy. What does that mean? Why would you use that? Tell me more. Tell me right. why we're calling her lazy or tell yeah. me why we're calling her strange or tell me. It's the othering. And right. so that, that starts very early and we're very much conditioned to it. And we bring that into our workplaces when we use that language. I mean, I'm not trying to be a pessimist here. I feel like othering, it's so hard not to do, even though we still like we're aware of it now, we know, and it is something that we all need to, need to like work on and be aware of. But then I got to ask, once you reach adulthood and you've, you know, like you said, a lot of this comes from how you were raised in childhood, can people really change the way they feel about stereotypes at our age, you know, in the corporate world? You know, they've been raised this way for so long and have been in these certain environments that they have chosen. And then they all of a sudden get into these companies and corporates that are, that are spouting DEI and diversity hires and all this stuff. How are we supposed to help them change their minds about the the way they view others? Or is Mm -hmm. it even possible? I think you can with intention. You know, I was doing exercise when I'm coaching leaders, when I have a white leader who says to me, black lives matter, tell me, what I can be doing and how I can show up for the black community. Right. What does allyship look like? And I start by asking them a series of questions. So what does your weekend look like? Tell me who you, where's your neighborhood? Who are your neighbors? What's the local restaurant you go to? Who cuts your hair? Grocery store. And when you have a life decision to make or something to celebrate, who are the five people you call that you would call who are not in your family? Right. Who look like you and act like you were self-segregating. And so stereotypes are, you find them from the media, you find them from books. There are, there are a way for our brains to create lazy shortcuts. Right. Nita is the only Indian I know. So she represents all Indians. Everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. And I kind of know her. We've had lunch like maybe twice at work. Right. Right. Now everything I sort of, you know, it's like for every time that someone's asked me, do I know Dr. Raj, the dentist in town? Obviously. Right? Or who I'm like, you know, when I get, we used to get that question early. I'm like, who? No, I don't know. <laughs> Aren't you guys? It's I, we, I still get that shit. I'm like, yes. we live, I live in a huge town. My like, brother-in-law is Indian. My brother-in-law is Indian. My son-in-law is in. Oh, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. But if that's the first thing you want to say to me when you meet me, like, let's just so undo that to say, yeah. just get to know me. Cause when you get to know me, we'll, we'll get, you'll get to know all about me. Right. Over right. Time. Which is, that's part of it too. I think it's sometimes people don't know what else to say to connect, right? Like that's their way of connecting yeah, with you. But, but I also think like, it's just how you build relationships. Right. How long have you worked here? How long have you lived in this town? Where do you consider home? Right. We tried this restaurant. There's a thousand other questions. Maybe I, they're just so excited to be around brown people. They just maybe, like and they are, it. and then they're so excited to say, "I'm an ally." Like, oh, yeah, I'm, I understand you because I totally, I'm, I'm an ally. Right, right. Which I don't know if I look upon that negatively. I'm like, at least it's something. At least it's a step. Right. It just depends. I mean, it's intent versus impact. I think the difference is is that if you are in workplaces and that is one of ten things that are said to you all day, every day, imagine. Right. Yeah. It's as Michelle Obama says, 
it's the paper cuts. It's the everyday slights we endure. And over a lifetime, it can, it's an accumulation. It can have a devastating sense of yourself, your self-confidence, because it's not just that one comment, that one innocent. They're all innocent most of the times, right? Right. Because, right. you know, and, and so I like to live my life thinking 99% of people have good intentions. The 1% should be in the news. They are bad individuals who should seek redemption. Most of us are trying to get it right. Right. And we often fail. And so that's fine. But it's like having, I can have grace and kindness for that, but there's right. only so many times that you can ask me. Well, you're in the the role, a leadership role, a DEI leadership role. And tell us some of the things that you've learned about DEI initiatives and companies that we don't normally see or hear about, which I, it was so interesting what you had mentioned last week and kind of opens up. It opened up my eyes to what's actually going on. Well, when you're in this work, you hear people say a lot of things to you privately. Right. That you have to coach people on. So um, many years ago when I worked for a leader who said, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. I mean, these are the, the kind of conversations you're having where you're like, okay, let's talk about that. What made you think that they wouldn't be good? Did I say that in our and to help and coach and unpack? Right. But the reality is there's a lot of companies are under a lot of pressure. We're now in a recession, at least from a US perspective. Mm-hmm. And especially as you're scaling companies, and I just think this is in life. We go back to the self-segregation piece, right? This stuff doesn't start at work, it starts outside of work. So how am I gonna Always. accept somebody? who's 32 years old to walk in and change who they are. Right. Right. That work has to start from within. And I think that's when I see a spark. And that's a tipping point. When someone can acknowledge one thing that they're doing wrong, that they could do differently, you start to see the change in them. Right. They become curious. They want to help. They ask questions. And that's that's the really difficult part is that right. you have to want to change and want to do the work. And I think when you're scaling companies... Employee referrals are not always your best friend. I'll never forget working with two founders. And they said to me, Mita, we tried so hard to create this internship program. We were so excited about it. We did all this work to source candidates. And we show up on the day of the internship class starting and there are 15 white women who walk through the door. Right. And I was like, okay. And they're like, how did that happen? And I'm like, well, tell me, tell me what you did. And they're like, oh, we posted the roles on LinkedIn. And I'm like, yeah. How diverse is your network on LinkedIn? Right. Oh, interesting, right? And that's- Who's seeing these posts, right? Right. And so that that's where I think it's just really difficult. And this is the, what we talk about on our podcast too. It's also the different standards, like- Right. Level of microaggressions, everyday aggressions that you have to face in the workplace. It's difficult, right? Whether right. it's professional or not. But you'll hear a lot of people like that saying, we're trying, we're doing this you know, and then someone like you having to come in and explain to them. And they're just, I think people are like, well, we're doing our best. What else do you want us to do? Kind of thing. And I think there's a mismatch. There's internally what's happening versus externally. I'm always working with companies saying, hey, I'm going to do the work internally before I shout it out externally. I think if you're watching what's happening with Walmart, it's really interesting. And the sort of blowback, wow, on Juneteenth and their ice cream flavor. I just heard about it. Yep. Just written up in the Wall Street Journal, right? I mean, and I, every influencer I follow is talking about it, and that's one where it's like, wow, I know Walmart has 
you know, I know many of the team members there and many of the people working and they're actually making really good progress in diversity. Right. They are. Art actually hurts for them. But then it's like the disconnect because corporations are so large. Those teams are probably separate. No right. one, I'm going to guess, I'm not going to speak for them, but I've been in this position before. No one went and talked to the chief diversity officer. See, here's the difference. Chief diversity officers, it is, it is no longer... You can no longer not have them at the table when business decisions are made. Right, right. Because if enough individuals who had expertise in this work, if enough individuals, I would argue, diversity representation, enough Black voices, let's not let's not hold that one Black or brown voice accountable. It really bothers me when I'm working with someone and there's been a crisis. Oh, I know for a fact there was a person of color at that table. I, oh, one. Great. Thanks. Congratulations. Speak up, and I spoke up and guess what? I'm the most junior person. And I always say, listen to the whispers. They are the loudest. Right. Listen to the whispers. Because if someone whispers something and says, this isn't making me comfortable. Here's why. Here's how I think it will land. And you dismiss that person. That was, that was your... That, there it was right there. You had it. Yeah. You to stop that, that was your hint. So that's an example, a real life example. We say, what's going on in companies? Like, how does that happen? There's just a disconnect where I think I am hoping that companies more and more understand and have respect and realize the importance of the chief diversity officer. Okay. To Good include to know. them at the table for decisions like this and others. And listen, I don't know. I haven't talked to anyone there, but I'm right. just sort of speculating based on you know, other things I've heard and situations I've been in that, that could right. be. And then also you had mentioned that you had personally gone through some tough experiences in, I don't know if it was in one work environment and a few work environments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Was it a particular thing that had like experience I, that happened? I've lost count. There's been many. Oh, wow. Okay. Mostly, um, I not so long ago left a really horrible, toxic bullying harassment situation. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. And that was to be gaslit every day is just a horrible experience. And I ended up writing a piece for Harvard Business Review that took me years to write. Wow. And it was called What to Do When the Boss Gaslights the Employee. And I wrote it and I couldn't believe I'm either response when I published it because I was getting note after note after note from people saying I've ha- I'm in this situation or I've had this experience because you often hear about gaslighting right. in personal relationships. It's actually from the U.S. context. I believe it was in the 1970s. It was coined. It and does seem like an old school term, right? Yeah, but it's it's unfortunately here to stay, especially in the workplace. And so gaslighting is basically this idea that you minimize, dismiss someone's experience, you just question and undermine and manipulate. It's a form of psychological It's abuse. kind of like a passive aggressive way of not changing the subject, but just, just yeah, dismissing. It's, it's also, I would argue, sometimes not passive aggressive. It would look like, uh, Mita, you're completely incompetent and no right. one will hire you here. And then telling the CEO, oh my God, Mita's one of our most amazing talent. She's on track to become a VP. It was that constant. And so... How long did you deal with this? Um, for too long, I won't say. Okay. I stayed for too long. Yeah. Okay. And then and then I'm sure it was a bunch of things that got you to to pull the trigger, but how did you finally get to pull the trigger? Like what happened? Um, one of the things, you know, it's interesting on our on our podcast, Round Table Talk recently, we had right. D and I started the podcast. I think it's I really feel like it's a reflection of our deep love, admiration, and respect for each other and talking about 
a lot of these issues that women of color face in their workplaces, but don't talk about. And so how can we go from surviving to thriving? And we, we recently had Gabrielle Union on the podcast and she, you know, that what we talked about was like, let's unpack workplace trauma, believe us. And I will, you know, let everyone know just a trigger warning. We do talk about sexual assault. And so it's a powerful episode and it's important one to listen to. And when we were talking about that, I was reflecting on my own experience when during this time I lost significant weight, I couldn't sleep. I, and it, it just, it escalated over time. Okay. Particularly in the last few years, last two years, last year really escalated. And I was crying. It was horrible. And my family and friends finally intervened to be like, at what cost? Because you start to think, and this is part of the immigrant mentality and work ethic, you would never quit a job. Like my parents fought so hard to be here right. and I can't handle this. So you would never quit a job. You would fight through. It's, right. I can fight Suck it up, system. head down. And sometimes you just can't. This must have... I'm assuming must have caused caused some PTSD from childhood. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I talk about the bullying. Like they're those bullies grew up and they went into corporate America. So they're there. They're here. And that yeah. is, you know, one of the big reasons I call it the great awakening, the great resignation, the great reshuffle. People are leaving is because they don't feel like they belong and they're not going to work in toxic workplaces anymore. Enough is enough. That certainly was my case. Right, right. Okay. Brown table talk. So congratulations. That's how I found out about you. It's amazing. So your co-host, her her name is D? Yeah. DC Marshall. Yes. DC Marshall. Okay. So first need to know, love the whole con, love the whole concept of it. It's, it's amazing. Need to know how it all came together. The impetus of the show. I think you guys were friends before you were saying. So we met in 2017, the multicultural women's conference in New York city. D was on stage speaking being the boss that she is. And I was just drawn to her and our friend Laquanda introduced us and we immediately sparked and I hired her to be my coach. And so she helped me through this bullying, gaslighting, harassment situation. I also hired her to do some coaching for my team. I brought her in for events. I supported her and diverse and engaged over the years. And that's just our friendship. That's how it developed. It was through okay. Yeah. And we would send each other audio messages. She taught me how to do that. I sound like my mom. I don't really do audio messages, but I do now with D text. We, have yeah. we would just be talking about all this stuff, like immediately call each other on the phone. She always called it like the bat line, like anything, you know, if you knew you were getting a call, something had happened. And so it was like the support, the help. And two years ago I said to her, I think we should start a podcast. I don't really know what that means. Right. Except I know. No I'm one does. Telling. <laughs> yeah. And it could be interesting. So we, unlike you, did not upskill ourselves to understand. I know you can upskill yourself on anything in life. I believe that, but I did not have the energy to do that. Yeah. So we took the pandemic to make it happen. I was like, let's do this. We did it. We we hired Rich Cardona of Cardona Media. His team has been great to help us produce. We self-funded the first season. And it's sort of like one day Rich says, okay, so it's dropping tomorrow. Do you have your email list? Are you going to tell people you started a podcast? And you're just kind of like, ah, uh, uh, yeah. going to listen other than my mom who still has trouble downloading the episodes. I'm same, like, I'm like, is anyone going to listen? And it just over time started gaining a lot of traction momentum. And then LinkedIn called and said, we're starting a podcast network. We would love for you 
to be part of it. And so we okay. had like a series of conversations with them and they've been incredible allies for us. And so we are now on season three. That's amazing. So I know the format you had mentioned is basically you and D talking. Yes. Um, and then you've introduced guests recently. Is that going to continue or? I think just one. We did Gabrielle Union. Okay. The topic of workplace trauma and mental health. There was no one best positioned to do than her if you hear the episode. Right. And I honestly think there's a, like, Ami, hats off to you, like, true podcasting. And there's a burden on you and hosts when you bring in guests. Like, how are you going to tell their story? Am I doing it in the right way? How are they going to feel about it? All these things, like, I do that a lot in writing and written right. form. When I cover, I'm a contributor for Entrepreneur. I have that same anxiety when I cover an entrepreneur. And I'm like, are they going to like it? What if they hate it? What if they block totally. me? Right? Totally. And so with D and I, because we're such good friends, we don't really pre-plan. I mean, no, we know what topics we're going to talk about, but we just show up and sort of banter about it. We have an episode that dropped recently on called Dear White Women, Let's Unpack Jane Campion and the Serena Williams Sisters, which was okay. an that happened earlier this year in, at the Critics' Choice Awards. You can listen. I won't give it away. Yes. But, you know, we just, it's like as if you were listening to our phone call. Like, oh. I describe it. Just going back and forth. We try to keep it short. It's under 30 minutes. Sometimes it's 20 if we don't have a lot to say. Yeah. And we tips at the end. And we, you know, early on, I mean, there was this moment where I said to Dee, well, okay, so if if I was someone on a journey to be an ally, what do I need to know? What could I have done differently? And that's right. where that sort of started because I started to think all these stories I share, I really hope it doesn't happen to someone else. So if somebody listening can stop that right. from happening, like that's my hope. And so right. that's how we sort of leave the episode with practical things to do and take away. I think at the end of the day, just having, being able to hear someone else talk about what you're going through is, is therapy right there. Like knowing, you know, that there's these two powerful women that have gone through what I'm going through right now, you know, like that with the fact that we're just talking about things out loud now, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. amazing. I've had so many amazing. women of color reach out to me to say, I can't, it's like, you're reading my journal. Yeah. Stories are like, I'm like, I'm not alone. Cause then you think, God, something must be wrong with me. There are times where I'm like, what is wrong with me? Right. I allow these things, right? Allow them. Mm-hmm. Allow them to continue to happen to me. How is it that I was treated this way as a child and right. still as an adult, I'm being treated this way. And you're like, it's the system. It's not me because droves of people are coming out. And I'm right. like, there's, there's therapy, there's validation. I have allies who are listening. One of my friends who, identifies as a white man and said to me, as I listen to these stories now, I like can remember when I think they might've happened at work. And I I wish I had been there for you. And I said, well, I wasn't really open about it. Like you wouldn't have known about all this stuff. Right. He he missed his, he missed his subway stop to work. He got, so he was like, I don't know. He ended up in Brooklyn or something. He's like, that's hilarious. And I was like, wait, I'm like, past my stuff, like (laughs) supposed to be, but yeah, that's been, and I, as Dee says, it's like ear hustling. Like you get to listen to conversations that you normally wouldn't have access to. Yeah. Or people aren't opening up about it like you guys are, you know? And I think, and you're you're telling, I mean, and I appreciate the props, but for me, when I talk to guests, I, I think of it the exact same way you do. I want, it's, it's a sneak peek into a phone conversation with a friend. It's, it's what I would talk about. I want to be as open and honest as I can be, as I would be talking to a friend on the phone. Yeah. 
But there's still like you have a gift for doing that. Like it's only the second time I've met you and I feel that way, but you have to have a gift for it or an intuition or an interest, any, any words you want to choose. I really just like people. Like I want to hear people's stories. And also to me, I think I mentioned this to you last week, this whole podcast process has been therapy for me. I've never gone to a therapist, but I have found out more about myself in these 90 episodes than ever in the past couple of years. And so I'm like, okay, kind of a form of therapy for me. Great. I want to, I want to round out uh, brown table talks. Ultimate goal. Where would you like to see it go? Or is there one? Ultimate goal. I want to, I'd love to continue to be part of LinkedIn podcast network, continue to work with D. I feel like the stories are endless. They are endless. I have Michelle Obama. I'd love to put it out there. I'd love to have some, I think, some really influential women on the show who talk about things right. that they faced earlier in their career that they're ready to talk about now. Because you look at some of these women, oh my God, they're so badass. Because you're such a badass. I'm like, I'm just me. And I've been through a lot of shit. <laughs> and so I'm ready to talk totally. about it now. And so that's, that, that's, that's suddenly you're like, wow, we're all we're all broken. We're all fragile. We're all being rewritten. Right. We're all still in progress. And I think that's really inspirational rather than just like, and that's the main thing. No one's fixed here. Like exactly. we're all going through this together. Okay. Back to LinkedIn. So top voice, you are one. How, how did you become one? And then you have a responsibility right on this platform now. So how has it changed your relationship with LinkedIn? Oh gosh. Well, my husband would always be like, what are you on LinkedIn for? (laughs) Before we even begin, I mean, before you answer this, it's my favorite. Is it called social media? Is LinkedIn social media? Okay. It's my, it's my favorite and I feel the safest on LinkedIn. Yes, I do too. Okay. As my friend Callie Schweitzer says, it's a platform of generosity. It really is. Although some, some of the comments are getting meaner, but on the whole it's not. And I think I'll give a shout out to LinkedIn. They do a very nice job very quickly of removing things that are overtly racist, harmful, anything that I will report, it will be taken care of. So I think right. for that. So he would say to me, Oh, don't tag me in anything. I don't know. Oh, what is the, what are you doing? What are you posting? What are you sharing? And I was, I mean, always the person who would scroll by as uh, five years ago, I was always like scared. Do I like, like, do I comment? Do I like thumbs up? What is going on here? And then it was took the pandemic when so many of us were isolated and our communities were ripped out from under us that I just started to really embrace writing more, which I was a dream I'd given up a while ago. I always loved to write. And then I just really re-embraced it. Right. Because stop drinking, stop Netflix binging, stop scrolling for Zoom tops I don't need. People are like, how do you do it all? I'm like, you focus on what's important. Yeah. I just writing is my superpower. So I want to spend time at it. So in that way. LinkedIn for someone who enjoys writing, I don't find it that difficult to do. Now, right. what I would say is, as I'm healing, my content has gotten more bolder, more unapologetic. That's amazing. Here are the lessons I'm learning. And so one day I got this form from LinkedIn saying you're nominated for top voice. I thought it was spam. I was like, huh. Yeah. Filled it out. And then I get this announcement. I get this award. And, and so I believe it's for people who are posting great content, right. posting, training, showing up for others. I don't have anybody who runs my handle. It's me on my iPhone. Yeah. I'm not somebody who, you know, 
happy for them. But some people who have like hundreds and thousands of followers, I would say some of the big business leaders who I know having worked in corporations are not running their account. Yeah, That's not me. I'm just posting what I feel like whenever. I think you can tell, right? You can tell if it's the person posting it for sure. I I mean, I'm saying I'm proud of you as if I've known you forever, but I think proud of you just as, you know, as a, a brown sister. But like, I love the fact that you left this toxic work environment, you know, somewhat recently. And now you're fucking LinkedIn top voice with a podcast, able to talk about the stuff to, you know, thousands of people. It's kind of amazing if you think about it. It is. Dee was telling me that the other day, you know, Dee always said to me, she said, I'm not your therapist, so get one. I never got a therapist, but I did have a journal and I wrote a lot of things down in that time frame. And so a lot of those things are also things that I'm talking about now, whether that's on LinkedIn or the podcast. So thank you. Yeah. And you I just, are, yeah, you should be really proud. I know I'm not talking like your mom, but no, no, like you're healing yourself like in a way, right? I hope I'm healing others. That's really yeah. why I you want to lift as many women of color up as possible. That's really the singular mission. That's awesome. I want to give you a high five, but um, in person we will after we, after we're done with our moves. Yes. Okay. Fun round. You ready? Okay. All right. And, and this can be this, whatever the first thing on your mind, you know, don't think about too much. Yeah. Talk to me about a time you've experienced heartbreak. Uh, lost my dad suddenly in 2017. That is heartbreak. You, That's uh, probably you, one of the ultimate heartbreaks. Until you lose someone, you don't know that heartbreak until that happens. Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry to hear. At the end of your career, what would you like to be known for? I really... I just listened to read a lot of what Dr. Maya Angelou had put out into this world and her quote about people won't remember what you said or did. They'll remember how you made them feel. I swear to God we're related. I have this this written down. Go do your family tree. Maybe you'll find. I swear to God. I literally have this quote written down and next to my bed. I think it matters. It's, it just, it, you can use it at any time, anywhere. Like it's just. But it also matters a lot in the workforce, in the workplace, and what's happening right now. Right. Lacking so much kindness and compassion. What yeah. are people going to remember that I kept them up till midnight updating a spreadsheet? You're, they're going to remember that I was the, the micromanaging toxic boss. I don't ever want to be that person. Right. Right. I always, yeah, whenever I leave a room or a weekend with, with friends, or whatever, I'm like, I just want to make sure not out of insecurity. I just want to make sure everyone felt good. It was a good, the room was good, good energies, good vibe. And I want to be part of that kind of thing. And that's really what matters, you know? Yeah. We're related. You're my cousin. Uh You kind of mentioned Michelle Obama, but who else would you like to collaborate with? Oh, well, Michelle Obama is one of them. (laughs) Um, Mindy Kalin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't see why that's not possible. You can get her on. I hope. Let's see. Yeah. Throw it out there. We'll make it I'm happen. Putting it all out there on my vision board. Totally. Yes. It that, that shit yes. works. It works. If you could have a permanent billboard somewhere, what would it say? Stay humble, hustle hard. I like it. It could be a t-shirt too. It could be a t-shirt too. Your guilty binge right now. And be honest. My guilty binge podcast or Netflix or Prime or whatever yeah, it is. Netflix, the binge, the binge was Bridgerton too. Yeah. I've written for Ad Week. I was obsessed. Binging for me, like. I was, I like needed to finish it. Okay. I was, you know, like, yeah, yeah, the binge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I was folding laundry so I could go and watch it. Right. My kids. Like that to me, because when you have children, you don't have like, I don't have endless hours to sit and binge something. Right. 
I go to the bathroom a lot, actually. I'm like, yes, guys, I have mommy has to go. Ah, that's a great again. They're like, again. I have, I have watched, you know, we crashed um and super pumped, but those were slower. Like it yeah. was I watched super pumped too. To, didn't have time to binge them. But I was like, is something like you can just keep watching till 3 a.m. And you'll feel bad about yourself the next day, but like you can do it. Yeah. I gotta ask, did you like season two? Of Bridgerton? Uh-huh. I did. I mean, I liked it for all the reasons, which is just, you know, seeing dark skinned girls on a right. screen. Right. Yay. <laughs> Bollywood has a long way to go. But I just was like, wow, that's, I mean, I grew up with a lot of colorism, both, you know, within the community and outside the community. So for right. me, that was just incredible that the, they were centered on the two sisters. That that just blew my mind because the younger me would never have think, thought that she would see that on screen. So that was like, yeah. And, you know, between season one and season two, there's been a lot of what happened in season one. I think particularly with my black friends and colleagues and how they felt the black community was represented in season one. Right. Season two, I think, um, you know, I wrote about it in ad week. I saw a lot of uh, individuals from a U.S. perspective writing about it with accolades, you know, from I think the perspective of those sitting in India being like, this was totally botched the melding of cultures. This made no sense. So you know what? We always say this on our podcast, culture and context matters. It's your perspective, right? right. And my perspective, it was well done. I also, I have that, I agree with you on that. And I also, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just always like thinking, hey, better than nothing kind of attitude or <laughs> one step. That's one yeah, step. I, so like the sex in the city debacle about <laughs> the, you know, the representation of- Langa and the sorry. Yeah, yeah I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm being an asshole here, but I'm like, who cares? I don't know. I, I I get it. I get it why people care, but I'm like, to me, I'm like, it's something. They're starting with something, I think. Is that, do you, do you get what I'm well, saying? Well, I think for that, the, for me, that I also was pretty vocal on that one. I think the context, knowing fashion, New York City. I know. And the story, it's kind of like sloppy. You, right. there, was, there was an episode of Game of Thrones that went viral where they left the Starbucks mug in it. Yep. And I don't, no one knows if that was intentional or not, but some, that to me just feels sloppy. Sloppy. Yeah. Like that's the difference. Like, I feel like that, that's what I thought. I was like, you they know, research you, can into, you can get into the whole, they stereotyped her. She was like, I forget how old the, the 50 Indian, something, yeah. 50 something wasn't married. Her parents, the anxiety when Carrie meets oh, parents and the conversations they're having. Okay, fine. But the, the sorry language was just sloppy, I thought. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. get both sides. I was more yeah. like, people were getting like, you know, upset about it. I'm like, yeah, at least it's something. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, how are you ready for this move? Like, how are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling really anxious. I okay. Am, Same here. I'm like, <laughs> I don't have friends. <laughs> friends. And so it's funny, people will say to me, but you know, you know, so many people. I'm like, sure, I know a lot of people and sure I have an external presence, but that's very different than who I grab coffee with or grab lunch with and are people going to like me and this is so weird, this adulting thing. And, and then having making friends as a full-ass adult. Yeah. yeah, making friends, like do we have things in common and meeting neighbors and I'm like, I shouldn't have said that. That was too much. It's like you're dating for the first time. I'm like, I, I know. About myself. So I have a lot of anxiety. Yeah. yeah um, I hear you. I, I'm not, you know, I'm moving within New Jersey. So it's not, I'm not doing, I think as big of a move as you, I will have some friends, 
that I can go back. I don't even have a lot of friends. Let's be honest. I don't know where they all went. Isn't that just life? You get older and like people just weed out. People go. I'm like, huh? It's yeah, so no. funny because people say they're like, oh, you're fine, Tucker. You know everyone. I'm like, yes and no. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. But then who do I call for that glass of wine? Like there's like yeah. four people. There is, right. So like, you know, I get it. So I'm like, you know what? I guess my husband has to be my best friend again. Yes. I'll work on it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we can be friends now and you can find me. Such a fun conversation. You guys, check out Mitha's show, Brown Table Talks, on LinkedIn. It is fantastic. And uh, I expect to see some pretty big things from her. She's pretty amazing. I can't believe this is it. Well, not this is it, but taking a break. It's going to be weird not to talk to you guys. Well, not talk to you guys because I talk into a mic by myself. But you know what I'm saying. I hope everyone has a fantastic summer and check out some old episodes whenever you have time. And uh, I will talk to you guys from my new amazing in-house studio in Dallas this August. Thank you guys for listening. This is Tuckered Out.